dedication, discipline, passion, sacrifice, rise and rise again. Welcome to Any Given Chance. Boom. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Any Given Chance podcast, the podcast about passion, what goes on behind the scenes, the hard work. Just before we jump into it today, I'll give our sponsors a big pump up. We can't go anywhere without them. So a massive thank you to Squad Athletica, SQD Athletica on Instagram. You can scroll through there. They've got all your training gear. Their shirts are unbelievable. Running shorts, yoga mats. I say it all the time. I love the socks. Buy the socks. At the end, put in your AGC code. You'll get a little discount. Black Rose Barbers, the boys at Carabunya Street there at Mermaid Beach. Go see Liam and that. They'll hook you up, make you feel like a million dollars on a Friday. And of course, our number one new sponsor on the scene, Ultrabet, the new Australian bookmaker, Australian-owned, Australian-operated, none of this overseas stuff. So welcome, Ultrabet. Thank you so much for uh, giving us the opportunity. What Ultrabet are actually doing is allowing us with sponsorship money to go out and sponsor these athletes. Not so much Tommy, who we've got on here. He's going to be killing it. But those underground, the pro boxes, the ones, twos, the guys are in amongst it and they're still working to fund their dream. Without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Thomas Stockdale. How are you, buddy? Yeah, good, mate. Thanks very much for having me on. And yeah, it's exciting after watching a few of your podcasts. It's great to have the opportunity and thank you very much. Nah, mate. Thank you. Like I said, we were just off air, just like talking about the difference between doing a podcast live and doing a podcast virtual. You still get good conversations. Can't wait to get you up in the studio. Just for everyone at home, mate, just fill everyone in who doesn't know who you are, what you do and where you're from. My name is Thomas Stockdale. I'm from originally Traralgon in, in Victoria. That's where I grew up and eventually done all my schooling throughout Traralgon and whatnot and had a really, really, really good upbringing down there on a little bit of land with mum and dad and my two sisters. And yeah, eventually somehow found myself as a jockey. That was never on the cards. Now I'm living in Packenham with my fiance. We're loving life at the moment. It's great. Wow. How long have you been a professional jockey? So I started my apprenticeship in 2017, but I've had a lot of injuries throughout my apprenticeship, which is probably equate to probably just over two years out of the saddle, just for recovery and whatnot. So you're realistically just out of, you're only a year or so out of your apprenticeship, aren't you? Actually, my apprenticeship finishes on the 10th of November this year. Oh, he's still, there you go. Yeah, it's, still, it's the longest apprenticeship known to man, but we nearly got it done. Hey, you'll be the most skillful tradesman coming out of it. I've seen other guys do three years come out and you're like, oh, you need to go back. <laughs> yeah. Not just in racing either. Mate, you said jockeying was never on the cards. Do you come from a horse racing family or, or what's the go? There is a side of my family, my second cousins there, a couple of them are trainers and previously were jockeys as well, but my immediate family were never into racing at all. I think us kids might have sat on the back of a pony in a paddock when we were kids once or twice. And I probably went on a couple of trail rides when I was younger with my grandfather, but nothing to say that I was going to grow up and be a jockey and follow down that path. Actually, when I was still in secondary school, didn't know what I was going to do. And my second cousin, Brandon, at the time was just starting to kick off his apprenticeship. And I found that I was spending more time on racing.com at school, watching his replays and watching him ride and following him. And I got in contact with him and he said, you should give it a go. He said, even if you ride for two years and don't like it, he said, you made a bit of money. So that's how it started. The seed was planted. Watching good old Brandon. 
I hadn't even touched a race or something. I read by this stage, I, I wouldn't know the back end from the front end, but I was keen to give it a crack. Isn't that weird? Because while you're sitting there watching racing.com in school and the like, we were doing the exact same growing up with surf mags because, you know, we were born and bred on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, beach was, you could have morning tea on the sand, essentially. But it's always like when we get to that age, it's I don't want to be here. I want to do something else. I want to be off of the fairies like Lee and Matt. So you come out of it. What was your first experience? Like how did you get back on that first, on the back end of a horse? Who gave you a chance? Yeah, look, I went to um, my cousin's house in Mornington where they had a breaking in facility there on the Mornington Peninsula and just rocked up on their doorstep. And I had two weeks off of school on holidays. So I thought I'll go down there and see if I like it for two weeks. And they were happy to take me in and give me a crack. And I remember my cousin gave me a head collar and he said, go put that on the horse, maybe down in box 20 or something like that. I couldn't even put the bloody head collar on. So I was as green as they come. And it was just a clean slate that I had to work on. Yeah, right. But I, I guess that would be like a spark. Like this is all new. So it, like even like putting the everything to your saddle would have been a learning curve. So it would have sparked. Is that how you found it? Like everything was just so raw that every day was something new and a new experience, which made it fun. Definitely. Even like just watching the races to start off with before I even touched a horse, I just loved the, it looked like an absolute adrenaline rush. And that's what I've always just been addicted to my whole life. It's just adrenaline going fast. That all appealed to me. But yeah, every single day for three to four years before I even gained my apprenticeship was just every day, just learning, just trying to get better at the craft. And even now to this day, I'm still learning every single day. Did you have any good guides? in and around that when you first started out, you have like a lot of times I see that if your initial go forward or your initial mentor is good at what he does, you're miles ahead of anyone else. If you've got shit mentors, let's just say, you've got to actually untrain your skills when you go to a good one. They're like, who taught you that? Did you have that first stop like straight out of the bank down there? I did. Like most mornings I was riding when I was up and going and eventually riding track work, I was riding around 26 horses a morning, which is quite a lot for anyone, but let alone someone starting out. And I'd ride my cousin Shane's horses at Mornington Race Course and I'd and ride my cousin Billy's horses as well and then go to Matt Laurie, Pat Carey, David Brido. And then I'd catch a, a truck back to the farm and ride breakers and young horses throughout the rest of the morning. So it was pretty much dark. So I Are you have- sleeping on them as well? Yeah, just about. It was hard to come by back then. But I think being able to have such a big and broad exposure really allowed me to progress quickly over those four years from not being able to touch a horse and be able to gain my apprenticeship. I can tell you right now, you've definitely got a bit of talent. For someone that I'll be watching you ride and, and watching you do, you've honed your skills and you're there without getting on your back too much. You see a lot of people, it takes a lot longer. So you've taken it to it like a duck to water, essentially. Everything that someone's taught you, it looks like it's sunk in and it looks like you're willing to learn and listen along the ways. A lot of people get to that two-year stage or I know how to do this, Jag. I'm not bagging Jag, but but he was a great story. He was like, oh, I I rode him around the the track four or five times and I went to my maiden race. I wound, I think he had four winners on his first day race and he goes, oh, this stuff's easy. And then for the next two years, he got into the slog where it looks like for you, it's just being that natural progression, that step-by-step. Step. And that, for me, always is the best process. There's no quick ways to success. Did you find you ever wanted to rush it? 
Or did you always want to, oh, I should be here, I should be there when you were young? Or what was the mentality of you? Not necessarily. I was happy even before my race, first race ride, I was happy still doing my trials, still getting my experience up. But nothing was ever natural with me. And with my cousin Brandon, I, the perfect example, he was the perfect jockey. Everything was absolutely natural for him. Everything that he'd done was just completely natural. Whereas myself, everything was forced and everything yeah. I was from scratch. So I was always happy to take me time. But maybe when I did eventually progress to town, I probably started just trying too hard when I first moved to the city. Probably that just slowed and halted my momentum. Isn't it weird? Some people always say that, like the harder you work, the luckier you get. But sometimes it's about finding that flow. It's not, found that in football as well, in rugby league, like the harder I tried to play harder, the more mistakes or a missed tackle led through to a try. And I'm like, oh, I'm maxing out my effort here. And it's weird that, and especially being in town for the first time, wouldn't it? You wanted to, I should be here. I've got to stamp my impression. I've got to show people, thank you for taking the opportunity on me. Did that weigh on you in any ways? Like after the first six months, did you sort of have to take a step back or how did you rectify that? I did have to take a step back. Like I was reasonably successful through my country claim and gaining confidence. And, and I took that to the metropolitan area as soon as I moved there, but the stakes are a little bit higher. I thought I really need to make a name for myself to solidify my name in amongst the apprentice ranks in town. And probably, yeah, just that putting that too much pressure on and trying too hard and getting, not getting upset, but getting frustrated when I couldn't pull off the results or I was getting suspended. I'm not looking back at it. It was probably the best thing for me because I learned a lot about myself, about my riding through that period, even though if it was detrimental to, which it was my success going forward, and it's just taken me a long time to get back to that position in the metropolitan area, I wouldn't change it at all. Yeah, that's right. That's a testament to sticking to the process. I've seen Queensland stars when they're under 17s not even be able to make Queensland Cup and or NRL in rugby league. I've seen the best surfers when they're grommets burn out and not stop surfing at the age of 18. So you're right. I, I always th- And it's such a hindsight. It's such a huge thing. Like you just said, I would not change that for a world because this is where I am now. But it's so frustrating when you're in that moment, isn't it? You're just like, why can't this go right? Like, I've had a knee injury. Why can't I do this? Why aren't I getting this over the line? Why isn't that presenting itself? I'm working so hard. And this is what I say to everyone on the podcast as well, is like everybody second guesses themselves. I wake up on days going, what am I doing with this podcast? What am I doing with work? Like full imposter syndrome. And then I film a great podcast and everything seems great. And it's moving forward and looking back on it, I'm glad that I continue to push forward with it. But isn't it weird how it's just like that when you're in the moment, it's so frustrating to not see. And, you know, some people do that. Some people continue to grind and grind and grind and grind and never see a result. It just doesn't happen for them. It's such a hard pill to swallow. Did you ever have that mentality like this might not happen? Or did you always know this is like the whole principle of willing things to happen or having that mindset, I know I'm getting here. It doesn't matter. This is where I'm going, where people might have that just chipping away in the background, oh, I might not make it. What did you just think? No, nah, I just got to stick to the process. What was going through your head through this position? Yeah, I think through that time, I had that little bit of doubt where, where you're saying to yourself, am I going to make it? Is it going to happen? But I think now that I'm a little bit older, matured a lot since then, I say a lot to myself, 
instead of thinking what could go wrong, think what could go right. Imagine if everything went right, how good that would be. All the negatives that you can't control, focus on the things that you can control. Imagine if it all pulls off, everything goes smoothly. How good is it going to be? And I find that puts me in a more positive mindset and that positive affirmation just is a flow-on effect. And when someone's riding with confidence, it definitely shows through their everything they do from their posture to their decision-making, it's all flowing on. You can see that. And this is when you guys get going hot spells as well. You can see, someone said it really well the other day, everybody's out there trying their heart out. So everyone down there in Victoria Racing is, they're putting in the work. You know, you've got all your other apprentices right beside you. You've still got the salt warts who are hanging about and you've got all the, the guys in the middle. They're doing the work. They're doing the same amount of work as you. They're training really hard. You know, some guys got a little bit more talent, might not do it, but 90% of them are. So the only way that you can get better or influence or get a, a, you know, a little bit of a, a kick on them or a head start is solely to get the rest of your life right. So everyone's training until they vomit. You've got to get your relationships right. You've got to get your food right. You've got to get your sleep right. They're the big things that'll actually put you ahead and get you just that one or two steps ahead of everyone. Because other than that, like everyone's just bashing each other and training equal and equal. I heard that once and I was like, oh my God, that is the best piece of advice I've ever heard ridding yourself of all the toxic relationships. So your riding might be off one day because you've got a social aspect or you're having a disagreement with someone in your family or road rage accident, someone's cut you off on the way. If you don't have that set in stone, where you're going is going to affect. I love where your head's at. Let's get into some good stuff. Let's go, what's a morning? What's a week like? When are you up? What sort of training do you do? Fill us in on your week and how you sort of progress. It's pretty hectic. Pretty much every day I'm on the back of a horse. So Mondays would be I ride forward track work for my boss out at Packenham before going to Cranbourne jump outs. And I might ride anywhere between 10 to 15 jump outs there in the morning. And then it might be off to the races. Tuesdays for Peter Moody out at Packenham. And then I ride his gallops and then ride the jump outs at Packenham as well. And then it might be off to the races as well. Wednesday is just a morning for me boss riding most of Moody's pre-trainers out of my boss's yard. Thursdays I do for Kira Ma and David Eustace out at Cranbourne. Fridays I'm usually back at my boss's to ride breakers again. Then Saturday I do for Robbie Griffiths, Matt DeCock. Wow. Nick Price and Nick Kent Jr. And, you know, I might be riding five to six, race riding five to six out of those days. Yeah, a lot of your work is done like basically on the back of a horse. That doesn't sound like there's much time for training or downtime or, or trying to build yourself up or anything like that. Just to elaborate with the people at home who don't know, who is the boss? Shane Stockdale. He's my second cousin and I've been with him since day dot. Is there much gym work or is there anything like that that you're doing to strengthen your body in behind the scenes? Or I find riding looks after most of it. Obviously, when I feel that I have to, might have something like coming up, I'll start adding some running in before I go to bed go for a run at night before I clock off. But other than that, riding pretty much looks after it. It's like surfing, riding, isn't it? The more time you spend out in the water or the more time you spend on the back of the horse, you're strengthening those muscles that you actually need. You can train in the gym as much as you want every morning. I run in that. And I actually found that made my surfing worse. The straight line running actually tightened up all my ligaments. So when I was going to rip turns, the knee didn't want to go past a certain thing because I started running, you know, half marathons and marathons. And I was like, oh, wow, I've got to get back into some movement training. And then 
if I just jump on the board and just go surfing, everything loosens up and frees up and I feel a million bucks. But I guess if you're already doing that work, I had a look at your stats last year. You did 560 rides or 570. So yep. you're doing that track work as well, plus game day of 570 rides, plus all your extras work in the background that's no one said. That's a lot through your body. How do you handle it? Is it sore? Is it just strengthened from doing that? Do you have a recovery plan or is it just Tommy Stockdale? Look at me. Look at me go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Some days and some weeks I feel like I've been hit by a bloody bus, but ice baths are the key to my recovery. By ice baths, I'll just elaborate. Is that just like a normal bath in Victoria? Yeah, <laughs> just about. I have a little chest freezer outside that sits on the deck and I turn it on at the start of the week when I clean it and I fill it up and gets it really nice and cold and you barely have to um, turn it back on throughout the week because it stays bloody freezing. I draw the line at uh, the Queensland and New South Wales border. It gets too cold for me down there. That ice bars, and there's a lot coming out on ice bars as well with just your ability and your body's releasing all the adrenaline and whatnot, attacking your brown fat, turning that ability to turning it into energy for you. Once again, you don't really ride light either. You're not down on the 51s or like, can you get down there or you're capable of 54, 56, 58, a lot more heavyweights as well. What do you yeah, walk around at? I walk around 56 and a half to 57. I'm hoping this spring I can get myself within range to ride 53 if the opportunity arises. But since maturing and I was sort of late to get heavy, you find some, some apprentices that get a little bit heavier when they turn 18 or around 2021. But I've sort of been late to mature with my weight as in a sense that probably when I turned 22, 23, that's when I really noticed I was struggling with it. And everyone that you look in my family, they were footy players, bodybuilders, strong tradesmen, cattle farmers. They're solid blokes. My old man, I'm a little bit taller than him, but he's built like a brick shithouse. And I reckon if I spent a week, you know, a couple of weeks away from riding on the diet he's got, I'd be built quite similar. Or it'd take you a year to run it off to get back down, starve yeah. yourself. <laughs> Mate, um, like you said, and especially at your stage in your career, coming into the spring carnival, the work would be coming in now for the next eight weeks to really focus on that weight, to be able to get down to that 53 kilos if those opportunities arise. Because they're the lightweights. There's only a certain amount of lightweight jockeys. And then you move to chicks, of course. If that opportunity presents it to yourself, especially at this age, before you, because you're going to continue to grow and it's going to be just get harder and harder to stay down at that lightweight. I, I think if you, you make a run for it this season at this spring carnival and something presents itself, I think it'll be worth it. I'd be very wary moving forward to continue to do that to your body. If you're saying that's your, you know, your family's like built like a brick shit house, you've got footy players and everyone and, you know, farmers, that'll be detrimental to your health. And I always say that to watch out because I've seen like Lukey Dittman, he's tall as taller than me. He's six foot oh and it somehow still rides at 57. I just, I don't have that discipline to get down there. I've always, I can't do it. I don't know how you do it. So for you guys who are sitting in and around there, mate, I always say like, don't waste an opportunity. And if you have the ability to do it now, do it now because it just gets harder and harder as you get older. And as you get older, you don't really want to do that either. You want to have your name set in stone where, you know, you're getting good rides at the weight that you should be, where you're comfortable, where you're strong, where you can know you can put in a good effort. That's a huge mental game for you guys wasting every week. Do you do much of that? Do you get in the sauna most days or what happens? Yeah. So two times a week, I'll be riding it. Obviously, sand down on the Wednesday and Flemington Caulfield or Mooney Valley on the on the Saturday and 
those are my two days that I do earmark to ride light to gain those more opportunities. But throughout the week, I won't ride any lighter than 56 if I have to. 57 is usually really comfortable throughout the week. But I will ride 56 if I have to for my main stables. But definitely on the Wednesdays and the Saturdays, I'm looking to ride lighter to gain those more opportunities. But it's something that you have to manage and it's something that I myself can't maintain every day of the week. With the workload as well, you'll just end up burning up and falling in a hole. But for you know, a couple of months, a few months that spring's here and, and whatnot where those good races are around, I've sort of earmarked it to try and be as light as possible for those few months to try and gain those opportunities. And it's only a few months of the year that I have to be in a little bit of pain and a little bit of suffering to try and gain that opportunity. And I, I think it's a small price to pay. It is. And that's the dedication of your sport and your lifestyle. And, you know, as much as I say it's bad, like that's what you have to do. And if you're willing to sacrifice that and, you know, make a, a perfect plan and run at it, all sports to you because not many do. That's in the too difficult basket. You know, no, I can't do it. No, I'm just going to stay here. So there's only a select few of you who've got that mentality that's strong enough. Do you have any help with this or do you do all the planning yourself or have you got a team? Does, it, does your fiance help? Like, how does this work? Or are you just sort of setting out your own goals and going, I need to do this to achieve this. This is what I need to do. Yeah, I used to have a dietitian when I done a little stint in Sydney and she really helped me get my weight down to, I think I was in quarantine at the time and she really helped me with my training and my dietaries and whatnot. And I learned a lot off her. I try and adopt a similar process to what I did back then. If you've got a um, nice household to come home to, you, everything's sweet at home. That really helps your training, your sleep, and obviously turning up sound on race day and having a good mindset. Do you find that when you do ride light during the week, like you've made, oh, I'm just going to do a couple of things. You get to Saturdays and you're like, oh, here we go. Like you don't, you're not coming in and do it 100%, but you've still got to put in a performance. And isn't it weird with racing? It's like every ride, that's it. You're under a microscope. You must perform. And look, so you should, mind you, but it's such a high level to stay at consistently. I had Hannah, a genetics coach, and like even with your body changing through the seasons and time, we might be releasing more dopamine or cortisol. You just can't fight it. There always is a peak season and a downturn and then a kick back up and then your body, like just our body and what we are, they can tell that. So for racing to go 24, like 24 hours, seven days a week, 12 months a year, it, it's insane. And to be able to have that peak performance, yeah, you really got to understand your body and you really got to learn about that food and, you know, your recovery and in and out. Do you find certain things work for you better? coming into the week, like certain foods or anything like that? Like, do you have a little bit of carbohydrates? What's sort of your diet looking like from a day-to-day or pre-game day? How does that look? I find a high-protein, low-carb coming into those days that I'm, I'm riding light. I'm still feeling relatively full from the protein intake, but cutting out those carbs and that sodium just allows me to drop that water weight a lot easier. When I get in the bath, if being on the low-protein, low-carb, I find I can get that weight off quite easy but you definitely notice if you have a little bit more carb or a little bit more sodium in that diet to rip off that water weight certainly it comes off a little bit. Doesn't want to move does it? It doesn't. I find that definitely works and I do find myself in a little bit of a rut when it comes to those. It's painful putting yourself through that process of getting that weight down, sweating as well but I find my fiance has been really pivotal in that process 
I'm always disciplined, but my motivation wavers as it does with everyone. But and she can see that, but she will always pump me tires back up and say, Well, you've done it before, you'll do it again. She gives me that motivation to get back on track. My wife does it to me as well. You've done it again before. You can do it again. Repeat your process. And that just sparks that inside you. I do know how to do this. I can do this again. I've done it before. I've just got to go down that. But there's always that little man in your head going, yeah, but it was really hard. Remember what you had to do? You had to run marathons. Like for me, it was run 21Ks every morning. You had to do this. You had to do that. And you had to put yourself through pain. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) And then she's going, you can do it. But then it's like this own little battle, isn't it? Each day, like, oh. But when you get out of that sort of zone and you start hitting that peak, do you find that it's just easy? Like, yes, we're doing this. Yes, we're on it. And it's like a nearly a two-week hump at the start, isn't it? Yeah. Once you get over that two-week hump, everything becomes easier and easier, easier until you get to your peak. And then all of a sudden, it's like really hard to maintain. And you're like, oh, 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 oh. And then you got to go through that process again. Don't worry. You know what you're doing. But it seems like you're only at your peak like a day ago. But it's actually like eight to 12 weeks or something like that that you've just been slowly regressing, 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 regressing until you get to a point where you're like, I've got to do this again. Like I'm not up here. And then it's weird. Do you find that that's the same with you? Yeah, I do. I do. Once you do get to your peak, it it is bloody hard to to maintain it. And I think just only riding those light ones two days a week means that I can be still at my peak and not burnt out while doing those waves. If I was to try and maintain that throughout the whole week, it'd be an absolute shambles. Mate, shambles. Relationship, like we're talking about, the emotional state that comes with it, yeah. no good. What else do you love doing? Give us some hobbies. It sounds like you're just a horseman, but what else do you love? Do you like watching the AFL footy? What? What's Tom yeah, Stockdale I'm, into? I'm really into um, deer hunting. Absolutely. Oh, really? Yeah. I just love getting up bush, first and foremost. Even if I don't even take any meat home or or whatnot, and I don't even see deer when I'm out there. I'm just happy to be out. We've got no phone reception. Everything's quiet. You've only got one task you've got on your mind, and that's trying to bring some meat home. You're looking for sign. You're monitoring the wind directions, possible heat currents. There's a lot to it, but um, just the simplicity of it, I just love it. If I do get a deer, then we've got free meat for the next three months. So I'm right into that, and I love cooking the meat, and I just love it. I think when people think of a, a hunter, they might think bloodthirsty, madman. Nah. No, not, not real people. Nah. Running yeah. around the bush with a gun, but I really enjoy cooking this meat, providing family and friends. Yeah. Um, it's a different food. level, isn't it? It is. It is. It's and a it's different level. Yeah. How do you go about cooking it? Because deer's not naturally tender. It's not naturally fed grains and fat. Actually, isn't that funny? We pay Wagyu beef is like, the sickest cow you can possibly have. It's just like fat, overweight, its legs are crumbling yeah. and it's $500 a kilo. But like good out there organic deal because it's a little bit tougher or something like that. Venison yeah. and that. People don't want to buy it. Don't go anywhere near it. So how do you cook that? How do you get it tender? Like what's your little secret on the side? Obviously the different cuts are obviously a little bit more tender than others. So I feel it's some back straps because they don't do too much work in the animal that they're a lot more tender than obviously the legs. So the legs I'll dry age for a week to two weeks, just hanging up in a fridge. And through that process, they become more tender. You lose a little bit of that gamey flavor. But I'll, I'll happily eat, me and my fiance will happily eat backstrap and the eye fillets out of the deer straight away because they're so tender. And 
you can cook steaks with it. You can mince it. Just do anything. I made pies last night for my fiance and my old man throughout the week. So they're wrapped. They they got their dinners sorted for the rest of the week. Yeah, that's the one thing I, I don't know. I don't know how to hunt. I got no idea. Got fishing, and I, I got a half an idea. But like you said, when you take into all the accounts and track it here, and the only way I'm hunting is if I see one run past me, and I'm like, oh, there goes one. <laughs> Quick, yeah. let's chase it. <laughs> Definitely has its similarities to, to obviously fishing and whatnot. When I first got into it. It's not as simple as going into the bush and seeing a deer and, and shooting it. You've got to be able to read your wind direction. You've got to know they're in the area. You've got to know what to look for. Is there prints on the ground? Is there rub marks on the trees? Is there possible heat currents? And unless you have all five of those things lined up, you ain't getting no deer. Yeah, ain't getting no deer. Mate, I'm, uh, if there's a zombie apocalypse, move over, Tommy. I'm coming down. <laughs> Sounds so, good. Uh, <laughs> And then, of course, you get into the butchering of it as well. Yeah. I love buying hunks and pulling them apart and understanding what part of this is and that. A lot of people don't know. They go, oh, bang, fry pan, plate. A lot of people don't even know how to rest. You know, you got to let the meat rest because once you're cooking it, it's like you're tensing muscle. And they're like, oh, oh, it's cooked. Let's eat it. And you're like, ah, if you just let it relax and sit, muscle lets go and a million times better. It absorbs all the juices. That's another fun part for me, just understanding it's a lot of respect for the body. You get to learn about the body. You get to learn about something that sacrificed its life for you to be fed. But more so like, because I, I do that. When I'm on, it's strict no carb, ketosis, a lot of red meats, some plant fiber and all that just to break down that in there, sauerkrauts and all that. I find that diet is, I feel it's so good on it. Gut microbiome, everything. And of course, all your gut microbiome just lines up with your feelings and, and your brain. So there's, there's some people who say the evolutionists of there that our gut actually formed first. It was our gut and then our brain stemmed off that. And those two are so connected. It's more and more about your microbiome now. And if you're feeding it fresh organic gear like that, adding in some fiber to help it break down and a little bit of acidity through your fermented vegetables and stuff like that, for me, I feel a million dollars. As soon as I get those carbohydrates into yep. me, terrible. And here's yep. a good note. There's not one essential carbohydrate that we need. It's not. Really? Not one. Yeah. We don't need them to survive. Yeah. We don't need them to live. There's vitamins, there's minerals, there's everything. We don't need one carbohydrate to survive. Yeah. We can go like that for ages on our fat storage. And the good part about racing out, completely different if it was an endurance race. I've ran a marathon without carbohydrates on ketosis, on fat for fuel, but I had to do that for six months. So my body was fat adapted, essentially. With racing, it's short burst. I mean, what's the Melbourne Cup? Three minutes, something? That's, yeah, that's around the, there. It's about that. A 2,000 meter race is about two minutes and your 1,000 meter race, if you've got a good horse, is 56, 57. So you don't really need to keep replenishing your body with those carbohydrates because most of your time you're trying to relax for a max effort. Relax for that 600, which might be 33, 35 seconds, max effort. So yeah, for jockeys and that, I always say there's no need for it. There's no need for those carbohydrates unless you need, you're a little bit down and maybe a little bit of fruit or something like that might pick you up on the day just to get you home and hosed. But you see all the old guys who used to sit there. I, mean, I used to see Kenny Pope and all the boys on the sunny coast. And they're sitting there with a Diet Coke and a Durry. And, uh, and that just used Red Bulls. And that was their day, wasn't it? And I'm like, oh, I just hate to be your liver. Like, yeah. I'd hate to be inside your body right now. So there is smart ways to do it. And I think you're on the right path, mate, with your hunting and your veal and your deer and, and your meals and all that. Mate, I really wanted to ask you about one of your biggest hurdles in racing. I really want to know like, what was one thing that stopped? I know you've spoken about a few injuries 
what was one of them? What was one of your worst? Yeah, look, I think they're all, they're all pretty bad. The leg definitely took, my broken leg, tib and fib, definitely took the longest. I broke that at Stony Creek in, what, have been 2018? I broke it there and I initially got surgery at a regional hospital in Gippsland and the surgery at the time was thought to have gone to plan but didn't at all. It was anything but. And we didn't find out till probably 10 months down the track that it wasn't healing at all and it wasn't working. So I had to go under the knife again and down in Epworth under Andrew Oppie and he essentially done the same surgery but just replaced it with a bigger rod, a bone graft and bigger screws. And with that, I was pretty much healed up within three months and back race riding within four to five months after that. But through that time, obviously, after the first surgery, I was still in an immense amount of pain, still on painkillers, hard painkillers too, doing all that I can, doing physio, doing ice baths, trying to work the leg and trying to get it going. But it was obviously never going to go anywhere with, with what was going on. It was like banging my head against the wall constantly, going back to the doctors and saying, uh, come back in a month, this hasn't done much, come back in a month. And it really opened up my eyes to how resilient I had to be through that period and also how dangerous painkillers are. Like when it come time to getting off painkillers after that second surgery, and I didn't even realise they could be addictive. I was, I was 18 years old and take these and you'll feel better, take two a day and you'll feel better and whatnot. When it came time to getting off them, it was to the point where I couldn't even go to sleep without even cutting one in half just to go to sleep. Isn't that insane? I was the same thing growing up through rugby league, getting bashed, nothing better than a Valium or something like that after a game. And that's what just the doc gave you, a couple of beers, have the best sleep, wake up. But you start to lose your mind on them. You're not there. You're 100% and I can tell you I won't even touch them anymore. I'll push out through anything because I've had that experience of who the hell was I? Looking back now, hindsight, once again, 101, just who was I? Who was I in that? Like I was 50 or 40% of the person that I was. Is that what you found as well? 100%. Like my fiance now, she was at that time we'd been dating for two and a half, maybe three years. And she'll show me photos today of that period where I was on those painkillers and still had the complications with my leg. I can't remember stuff all from that period. And that, that's nearly a 12-month period that has just been a, you know, I can remember bits and parts, but she'll show me photos and I'll ask her, you know, where was that at? You honestly can't remember anything from that 12-month period. Wow. That's yeah. gross, isn't it? Knowing that now, but we're in that zone where no one, this wasn't reported. They were just throwing them out there. There you go. Take this. And they didn't even know, you know, there was no long-term studies. The people selling it and creating it, they knew. But they weren't telling us. <laughs> it was like little, oh, we're helping you get on these. Nowadays, I'm like at all cost. I don't throw anything. Because once again, I found that when I went back to training, really, it took me two weeks to flush it all, get it out of my system again. So legs feeling good now though? Nice and strong? Legs good. I still got a metal rod going through my shin bone and two screws, one below my knee and one in my ankle. But it's as strong as ever. I don't have too many problems with it now. I can run pretty well with it. Call me when you're 70. Yeah. You know, that's what I say to me, mister. I said, I'm feeling all right now, but I can't imagine what I'm going to be feeling like when I get on a little bit. After I retired from footy, there was uh, sitting on the edge of the bed, bending down to pick up your undies and put them on one foot at a time, I tell you. But mate, stretching, yoga, 
keep moving. It'll all work. But by that time, we're probably going to be robotics with a chip in our brain anyway. So yeah, that's it. we've talked about a low. Give me a high. Give me one moment or give me a couple of moments that just sit in your brain like, oh my God, that's awesome. Like, is there a win out there? Is there something in life that you did? Was there a deal? What's one of your highs in life to tell me? Look, probably throughout my career, obviously chasing black type success and I haven't achieved it since this day. And I was booked to ride in the Group 3 Araria Stakes in Adelaide on a horse called Tai Chi Goddess. And she was, I think she was paying around 60 to 1 in the market, but her form was better than what it read. And she'd been going so well throughout track work and whatnot. And I had to ride her at 55 kilos and my training was on point. And I just pictured it leading up to that day throughout the whole week. I just pictured me and her winning every time I was training. I was just picturing her, how I thought the race might be ran, where she might be, and also the feeling of what it was going to be like to win that race and pulled it off, three back the paint, four back the paint, hugged the fence, went around probably two horses and got up and got the cash. And I think the first person I rang when I got out was mum and to speak to her after that race was just, you know, unreal. They've been there since day dot. They've ridden all my highs and all my lows and I've had to drag them through the ship with all my injuries and I always love it when they're there throughout my highs. Everyone that's around you and in your team and they have to go through those bad times with you. So I always make a conscious effort that they're always there when I'm winning. I love that. I absolutely love that. If you're there with me when I'm low, you have me when I'm high and I'll make sure you're there. You're not forgotten. Isn't it weird though? Like I always say that. Quick, somebody call mum. Tell yeah, her I made it. Yeah. And yeah. you're straight on the phone. Mum, yeah. did you see that? Did yeah. you see that? I don't think there was any, any words bloody spoken. I think we're both balling. I know that. No, nah, not much was spoken, but I think a lot of the discipline comes from my mum and my dad. Growing up, I was always doing two to three sports at one time and I'd get home from off the bus and sometimes I'd say to mum, I'd say, oh, you know, I'm too tired to go to karate training after footy training. I said, you know, how about I just go to footy tonight? And she would she'd never let me. She'd always say, no, you wanted to, you said you wanted to do these two sports, three sports at a time. She said, you're going. So yeah. I think I owe a lot to mum and dad for instilling the discipline in me in me and it's definitely rubbed off in my young adult life. I love it. I absolutely love it. I want to get you back on. I know you've got to go. You've got a pretty boys photo shoot, don't you? At Cranbourne? Yeah, there's a few of us jocks getting around Cranbourne today and doing a little photo shoot for their old son. And I think Catherine Coleman might be holding up the Melbourne Cup and the Cox Plate and the Caulfield Cup. So Got to do me makeup and look pretty for the camera. Yeah, I like it. Get out there, put on the brush your teeth, get get the high smiles white glow going. Yeah, make yourself looking front and center. Look, everyone out there, all the listeners, thanks for coming on Tommy's journey. That's just a little insight to this bloke, mate. You got to watch him race. He's on a path and he's on that trajectory going up, mate. Thank you for coming on the show. I can't wait to watch you over the spring carnival, and I can't wait to watch your career keep progressing in the direction it is because it it is honestly. It's just, it's not this peak and down and up. It's just consistently flowing. And I love people who show that work ethic. And that's what this podcast is about. So, yeah, I just appreciate you for having me on. And hopefully, next time when we can do one, we're up on the GC sunning ourselves. Hopefully, the podcast is that big by then. I'll just fly you up. Come on, bros. Jump yeah, on. Let's yeah. go. And we'll go out for a feed and we'll go to that, hang out. We can get on, uh, brush the races, bang, bang, seven winners and go home. So, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, all right, bud. I appreciate it. For everyone out there, like I said, 
This is how we grow. Like, share, and subscribe and give it a push to your family and friends. Hit that button. Don't be one of those people who only comment on negative. I did a social test the other week. I put out a little spray on the Matilda. Bang, 40 comments. We put out this positive, great group stories. Two comments. People just love negativity. So don't be one of them. Like, share, and subscribe. Get the podcast on the front foot for us. I'll see you all soon. Woo. Wow, that was the Any Given Chance podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Now, if you want to see some more action, head over to our socials and give us a like, share, and subscribe. We're on YouTube at the Any Given Chance podcast and on Instagram and TikTok at Any Given Chance. And if you can hit share and subscribe, much appreciated as we grow. Plus, we're always looking for new guests. So if you know someone in the midst of a battling, good little bit of adversity or someone who's been successful, message us direct. We always check out inbox. And of course, if you want to check out old episodes, repurposed ones, you can jump over to our website, which is anygivenchancepodcast.org. Thanks for joining us once again. I'm your host, 3AM365, Matty Menion. No days off, no excuses. And I can't wait to catch you on the next one.